Well, good morning, everybody. I have $20 here in my hands. This is a genuine, real $20 bill. And so the first person that... No, I'm just kidding. I'm not giving away money today. That's not how this is going to go. <laughs> These guys in the front were like, I'm on it. <laughs> hey, this is... Anyway, this is a real $20 bill. And it, what, it's, what, it, what we call this... Pardon me. What we call this in Canada is a piece of fiat currency. And if you're a documentary geek like me, you've probably seen some documentaries on what fiat currency is. But fiat currency just basically means that this piece of paper is worth $20 because the government tells us it's worth $20. It doesn't rep represent anything. Like in the olden days, money used to be tied to some type of an asset. So, so $20 in my hand would represent $20 worth of gold somewhere in a vault, right? So as, as uh, this goes, this is only worth $20 because the government says it is there's nothing that makes it worth anything other than their word which also makes it a little bit hard as we know right now with inflation that when the government says well this is worth $20 and it's not backed by anything else and the cost of goods starts rising this is still only worth $20 but the cost of the goods start to go up so it's just a piece of paper now get a close-up of this one this is a one million dollar bill and I had to mortgage the church to do this this morning. Just kidding. It says on here, it says, this is not legal tender, unfortunately. It's almost like they knew that when the person got this bill and realized it was a fake, they were going to be disappointed, which is exactly how my wife and I felt when her grandparents gave it to us in a Christmas card one year. <laughs> the most disappointing thing is there was no real money to back this up. <laughs> Anyway, um, in our society, it has been decided that because the government says so, this is a very valuable piece of money, but this is worth nothing. I also have another piece of fiat currency here, and this is a $1 bill in eKids money. <laughs> Upstairs in eKids Central or in eKids uh, shop after church, this baby has a lot of value. Your kids earn these things for various reasons up in kids' church. And if they collect enough of these, they can buy candy or all kinds of treat. And if they save enough, they can even get a special hangout time with Miss Kelsey. No amount of these is going to buy you special hangout time with Miss Kelsey. You've got to have this piece of currency upstairs. And so as we look at all of these different pieces of currency here in my hand. It's interesting how like in one sense, in sort of the cosmic global sense, they're all just pieces of paper with ink on them. But somehow, and for some reason, our society has decided that this is very valuable and this is very important. So much so that people are willing to give up their marriages over this. It's actually one of the main reasons that people write on their divorce filings when they hand it in, that money was the cause of that. And we know that people are willing to do almost anything to, to get more of this piece of paper right here. So as we begin today's message, I want you to keep that sort of tucked into the back of your mind that in one sense, this is a very valuable piece of paper to society, but in the other sense, it's actually just a piece of paper with ink on it. The question that we have to ask ourselves now is, does God see value in this? 
because we know the world does. In church, we don't often talk about money, and sometimes churches don't talk about money because it's taboo to talk about money. We think that, that the, if we talk about money here in the church, we kind of value it like the world values it, and we don't want to have people thinking, oh, well, they value it like the world, and so they're just trying to get more. So we shy away from talking about it. But the truth is, if God doesn't see value in money, we probably shouldn't talk about it. But if he does see value in it, then we probably would be wise to spend time talking about it. Did you know that there are over 2,000 verses in scripture that talk about money and possessions? That's a lot of verses. And Jesus, in his parables, over a quarter of them, he talks about money. So I think as we look at money today, we can assume that it's okay to talk about it and that actually God does see value in it. And so we're going to talk about money today, but we want to be clear that God actually sees a different value in money than the world places on it. So this morning, we're going to continue our sermon series titled Generous Worship. And in this series so far, we have talked about uh, how our service to God can be an act of worship. We have talked about how, how when we work, that can be an act of worship. And we've also talked about how, how uh, as we sing and we... we uh, uh, the word's escaping me right now, but how we, anyway, when we sing, we can worship God. <laughs> this morning, we're going to talk about how we can actually worship God with our money. And that can happen only if we view it the way that God views it. Money for us is providing for our needs and our wants, but money to God is something much more. Money to God is actually a discipleship tool in his hands. God is able to use money to expose the genuineness of our affections for him. He's able to use money to help us be more confident in him. He's able to use money to teach us how to be more generous. And God's able to use money to gather worship to himself. Money to the world is something that it's, it's here today, get as much as you can because it's going to be gone tomorrow. But in God's eyes, money is something that he can use to create ripples into eternity. So God values money a lot differently than the world does. We're going to talk about that today. So there are many different things that go into managing money. We know that there's, there's spending and there's saving and budgeting and investing and all that kind of stuff. And there's a six-week class that we teach in this church. Sometime later in the future, I think after Christmas, we'll run it again. But we're actually just going to focus on one component of managing money today. And it's the most important component. It's a small component, but it's actually the most important because it reveals where our hearts are in terms of money. And that is with giving. So we're going to talk about giving today. How we budget, how we invest, how we plan for our state and legacy, as Gord is going to be talking about later in the fireside room with some of us. All of that is affected by how we view giving. And so if we get giving right, it's going to affect how we plan and do all of those different things. As we get started today, we need to understand one thing. And that is that giving is a heart issue far more than it is a wealth issue. So it affects everybody in this room. And you might think, well, I don't have a lot of money, so giving doesn't affect me. Not true. Giving is a measure of your belief and obedience to God in the area of your finances. So as believers, giving is an important thing to talk about and address and understand what it means to us, because obviously it's important to God. Luke 21 records the story of this, this poor widow who gives all that she has at the temple treasury. 
And this is a ridiculous, minuscule gift that this woman gives. She gives two cents, and yet it's all that she has. In the world's eyes, this was nothing. And yet in God's eyes, this was an incredibly generous gift from the heart. And Jesus notices her, and now she's recorded in scripture for all of time. Her gift mattered and created ripples in eternity. You know, you can give $2 million and still be a stingy and disobedient giver, and yet you can give two cents, and you can give glory and honor to God. God is less interested in how much we give, and he is far more interested in how generous and obedient we are with what he has given. Today, as we talk about giving, we're going to be going through 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. And so if you want to open up uh, your Bible, and you can follow along as we read in there in a minute, um, because the passages are not going to be up on the screen. But let me set the background here. In this passage, Paul is preparing the Corinthian church for his arrival. And so he's telling them uh, about his arrival. And he's going to say, hey, I I'm going to be there and I'm going to be collecting an offering. And so you guys need to be ready when I get there and have thought about that because um, they are going to be taking an offering to send some money back to the Jerusalem church and Paul and some associates are going to be accompanied to take it there because there are a lot of poor people in the Jerusalem church. At the time, the Corinthian church was quite wealthy. And that fluctuated over time. Sometimes they'd be rich, sometimes they'd be poor. This was a particularly wealthy period of time for this church, but the Jerusalem church was not. The church was also very young, not just the Corinthian church, but the whole global church was quite young. And so there was divisions in the church still between Jews and Gentiles. And yet this offering was significant because what it was, it was showing that it didn't matter if you were a Jew or a Gentile, the body of Christ was one and it would care for itself as God provided. At some point in the past, the Corinthian church had made mention to Paul that they wanted to be a part of this gift and they wanted to give generously to it. And so Paul is just kind of setting them up here saying, hey, I'm gonna be there soon. And when I'm there, you know, start saving now because when I'm there, I'd like to just collect it and not be this begrudging thing for you to give because you've got plenty of warning. So let's read this. It's rather lengthy, but let's read this passage together. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. The service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourself, Others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. As we look at this passage today, we can see what kind of giver that God is calling us to be and we can also see what happens when we actually do what he's calling us to do. So first, let's look at 
this first section here. It says, uh, my first point is God is discipling us to be generous givers. And so we're going to look at verse 6 here to start off. It says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Paul has decided to use agricultural language here as as he's trying to get the Corinthian church to understand his perspective on giving. And it's good for us. This helps us see how God views giving through this agricultural language. But as we look at verse 6 here, do you notice what's missing? There's something missing here. Paul doesn't say anything about the farmer who gives no seed or sows no seed. He talks about the, the farmer who sows a little bit of seed, and he talks about the farmer who sows a lot of seed, but he makes no mention about the farmer who sows nothing. Why? Well, I think this agricultural language is actually really helpful for us here because as a farmer, it's your job to produce a harvest, to have some type of crop from what you're doing. So at the very least, a farmer is gonna wanna sow some seed so they can have a crop. A farmer who doesn't sow any seed isn't a farmer at all. And I actually think that's a pretty strong indictment because we know what Paul is getting at here. Paul assumes that if you're a believer, you are going to want to get in on the fruit of giving. And so he sees that. And so you're not going to want to sit on the sidelines. You're going to want to participate. And so his experience with the power of God in his life has led him to this crazy idea that everybody's going to want to give. And you go like, why would he think that way? Because I'm guessing that not everybody in this room feels the same way that Paul did. Well, most of us have seen a baptism take place here or maybe in another church. And baptism for us symbolically means we have died to ourselves as we go down into the water into our sinful nature. And we are being risen back from Christ, in Christ, submitted to him in our lives. So we're dying to ourselves and being risen anew in Christ. That's what it symbolizes. I have yet to see anybody go down into the baptism water, holding up their wallet to make sure it doesn't get wet, coming out going, everything but the money is yours, God. That's not what happens. We know that even if the wallet is in the other pants, you know, that that represents the whole person giving their life to Christ, and that includes the money. So in verse 6, the question that Paul puts forward is not if you should give, it's how generously you should give. And I don't know about you, but that kind of makes me a little bit uncomfortable. What do you mean by generous, Paul? Well, Michelle showed me this video clip the other day of these two comedians, and they were talking about tipping and how people these days are experiencing tipping fatigue. That is a real thing, people. I saw it on the news. People are experiencing tipping fatigue. Do you guys like remember the old days when like 10% was considered a good tip? And if you gave 12, you were like a hero. Oh, wow, 12. Well, I gave 12, you know? And then it became 15 and then 20. And so these comedians are talking and the one guy's like, he's like, yeah, tipping is, it's, it's becoming expensive to tip now. And he's, he's sort of saying how like my waitress, Debbie, like she wants 20%, but the Lord's only asking for 10 And it's kind of this humorous little clip that kind of reminds us about a truth about generosity and that we've actually become quite accustomed in our culture to being generous with the things that we can be selfish with, like eating out or going to a massage or getting our nails done and tipping very generously. But there's less of a precedent to be generous with our giving. 
There may be times when God calls you to be more generous than 10%, and there may be times where he says, don't bother, you don't need to give 10%. But there also might be times where he asks you to give 100%, which is what happened to the widow at the temple. The question is, is is your heart capable of handling that kind of a request? Giving in the kingdom is sowing and reaping, just like the modern suburban man caring for his lawn. You've seen these guys, right? I'm one of them. Out on their lawn every Saturday, <laughs> we got people you know, they're out there. I'm out there on, on Saturday and I'm trying to make my grass look really good because it's got to look better than the neighbors. That's the goal that every man is afterwards. The problem for me is my, my neighbor's a little old lady and I can't keep up with her. Her lawn is amazing. I'd sleep on it. Anyway. The modern man is concerned with his lawn because so when he's doing some grass repair, he's got a little soil that he throws down. Well, he doesn't sprinkle a tiny little bit of seed in the dirt hoping that it'll, you know, produce a little bit of grass. No, he's, he's spreading all the seed because he wants a green, full lawn. He's in competition. That's what Paul's getting at here. If you want to sow sparingly, you're going to see, receive sparing results. He's saying sow generously. It's the same way in the kingdom. If you want lame results, sow sparingly. The church, churches in our city are filled with people and in our country are filled with people who want to see God's power at work in their lives. They want to see God move, but they're too afraid or they're too selfish to give generously of their time and of the, their talents and their money. There is no reaping without sowing. You know, we are at a very special time in our church's history here at Ellerslie. Ellerslie is in the middle of a harvest time. You know, our, more and more people are, are, are saying, hey, I want to know more about God. I want to learn, I want to go deeper in my relationship with him. I want to be disciple with him. Our kids' ministry is seeing more and more people, uh, kids in it, and the quality of our kids' ministry is increasing all the time. We have new people coming into our building all the time that are feeling welcome as we bring them in. God is moving here, and it's exciting, and it's vibrant, but this is because of the generous sowing and giving that people have done in the past. If we want that harvest to continue and increase, that will mean more sowing on the part of this generation. The people in this room, me and you, sowing in our time spent with God, sowing in our talents, working here in the church, and of course, sowing with our finances and our gifts of money here. Now, there's a side note that I want to make here. I'm not saying that when we do this, we can force God's hand into a harvest. That's not how it works. The Holy Spirit moves as he pleases. What I'm saying is we need to make ourselves ready for the harvest. And that starts by following the biblical design of sowing generously. Generous harvests come from generous sowing. As we move on here, we see in verse 7 what we need to do in order to figure out how generous God is calling us to be. Verse 7 says, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Paul is encouraging them here. He's saying, hey, look inside. Spend some time in prayer, in communion with the Holy Spirit, and see what he is calling you to give for those of you who regularly give here at Ellerslie, how did you decide how you were going to give and what you were going to give? Was it through prayer and communion with God or was there some sort of external thing, something outside of yourself that kind of helped you realize, yeah, that's what I should give? You know, we shouldn't figure out how much we're going to give solely based on the size of the tax deduction that it's going to create at the end of the year. 
That's wonderful. It's great that the government gives us a tax deduction on our giving. But our giving should be determined by spending time with God in prayer and discerning what he is calling us to give. In some cases, that might be 10%. In other cases, it might be more or less. God doesn't always need us to give more, but we need to be ready if he calls us to do that. And by determining what we should give and how generous we should give, by spending time with God and not by the size of the tax return it's going to create, we can be sure that we are going to be generous in the sight of God's eyes. And that's the more important thing here. It's not what the guy who's creating, the, the lady who's creating the tax receipt at the end of the year thinks that you're giving. It's how God looks at how you're giving. About 10 or 12 years ago, I was at a, a conference with Francis Chan, and he's a, a famous pastor and author. And at the time, he had, uh, was speaking to a group of, of youth kids, and he was sharing with them how they should be generous givers, even at their age. And it was powerful what he had to say. But he had shared how he had just finished writing a year or so earlier a book called Crazy Love. And many of you maybe have heard of that book. And at the time, the book was becoming more and more popular. And he was thinking like, wow, this is starting to make some serious money. And as he realized that, he's like, he walked into the kitchen one day and he said to his wife, he said, you know, this book that I wrote, it's starting to gain a lot of popularity and it's starting to make a lot of money. She's like, oh, that's good. But he said, no, you don't understand. He's like, it's gonna make a lot of money. Like if it keeps going like this, it's gonna make us over a million dollars. And Francis is just a normal guy. He's a pastor, has a normal salary. So all of a sudden to be given a million dollars, well, that's a lot of money that he wouldn't be used to handling. So him and his wife decided that they were gonna pray and ask God what he wanted them to do with this amazing gift that they had just got. And after prayer and spending time with God, they realized God was actually calling them to give it all away. Can you imagine? And Francis shared how after they, they made that decision and they started to do that, some of their family and friends found out what they were doing and they started criticizing them, saying, don't you think you should save some of that for your retirement or for a rainy day or, or anything like that? And Francis said it didn't matter how logical their arguments were or that it made perfect sense that they should do something like that. It was more important that they were obedient to the call of generosity that God had played on them. It was more important than worrying about their future or worrying about you know, providing for a rainy day. And at one point, somebody said to him, you know, you're giving so much away that you're gonna end up starving to death. And Francis was like, I live in North America. Like, I'm not going to starve to death. I'll just go to my neighbor's house and get food. Or I'll go to a, you know, a shelter and I'll get food there. I'm not going to starve to death. He goes, but you know what? Even if I did starve to death, he goes, what's the worst that's going to happen? I'm going to stand in front of God and be like, whoops. Like, God's going to be okay with me giving all this money away, right? That is the kind of crazy giving that people are able to do when they spend time with God and ask him, Lord, how generous and then they step out in faith and obedience and they do what God's asking them to do. You know, Francis didn't starve when they gave all that money away. The last time I checked was, was like 10 years ago. It was like $5,000 to bring him out to speak. And I think it's probably even more now. He's doing just fine. When was the last time that you knelt down and you prayed, how generous, Lord? And if that terrifies you, you're not alone. That actually terrifies me too. That's a scary thing to pray, but you know what? When we pray that, God will use it to disciple you. He won't let you starve. Matthew, out of Jesus' own lips, Matthew 6, 31 says, so do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For pagans run after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. 
but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. In other words, ask God, how generous, Lord, and all of these things will be added to you as well. Spend time in prayer asking God, how generous, Lord, and then be comforted. He will be beside you. He won't leave you hanging out to dry. This leads me to our second point, which is God is discipling us to be cheerful givers. The last part of verse seven says, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, many of you, if you're like me, can get on board with giving. You're like, you know what? I can do that. I can handle being a giver and, you know, being obedient. I get that. But cheerful? Come on, God, really? I think that this verse should read something like, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, even reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves an apprehensive or even a borderline disgruntled giver. You know what? Just giving is all I want. I think that's what this verse should say. But that's not what it says. It says, for God loves a cheerful giver. And we go, why? What is it about the cheerful giver that God loves so much? And you know what it is? A cheerful giver gives like God gives. And I'm going to explain what that means in a minute. But first, I want to answer the question, how do we become a cheerful giver? Well, the answer to that question of how do we become a cheerful giver is actually really simple. It starts with a perspective change. We can't give cheerfully and value money the way the world does. We can't see it value. Because the the world says, you've earned this. You've worked hard for this. It's yours. You need to decide how you're going to get rid of it. The pool of your resources, it starts and ends with you. You're the decision maker, and this is yours. And that's exactly the way Satan wants us to think about our money, because when he does that, it pits us against God. Because when we give, that means God's taken our money. But that isn't the way God is with our money. That's not the way we should be thinking. That is twisted thinking. A biblical perspective has God as the provider and the sustainer of all things. Which means the pool of our resources doesn't start with us and our hard work. The pool of our resources starts with God and it flows into our hands. He gives us the ability to earn the income. He gives us the ability to continue to work. It starts with him. Which means when God asks us to give, he's not asking us to give out of our resources. What he's saying is, will you be willing to allow some of what I've given you to just flow through? Not all of it, just some of it. Remember, money is a discipleship tool in God's hands. So when he gives you money and allows you to earn an income, and then he asks you to give some of it away, he's wanting to make you more like Jesus when he does that. And if you can view your money with this perspective, it will start to bring joy into your giving. And we learn about this godly perspective in verses 8 through 11. It reads, And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. God is the one who makes your giving possible. As it is written, it says, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through your generosity, or through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. These verses, they confirm what we've been talking about. If God calls you to give, he's gonna supply you with the, need, the means to make that happen. He has a harvest in mind. 
This past week, my daughter turned seven. And as much as she loves to get gifts, she loves to give gifts even more. And as a seven-year-old, she doesn't have a lot to give away. So she'll just go around the house and she'll just find things to give to people. And she doesn't have access to wrapping paper, so she's like grabbing cloths and shirts and bags and she's wrapping the gifts and all this stuff. And so, you, you know, you can come to her house and you might receive a gift wrapped in a shirt from her. She gets so much joy out of giving, you know, and she doesn't care, you know, what she gives away. She's just happy to be able to give. Lately, she's been giving away money, and as a seven-year-old, she doesn't have a lot of money, so she gives, she gave her auntie, my sister, five dollars for her 45th birthday. Five dollars to a 45-year-old is like the change that you find in your car when you're cleaning it, Right? But $5 to a seven-year-old is like six months worth of wages. But even though Capri doesn't have a lot of money, that doesn't matter. She is just thrilled to be able to give. And when she gives, she isn't thinking about, oh, this cost me $5 and I took six months worth of allowance to get there and all that kind of stuff. That's not what she's thinking. She's just happy to be able to give. And, and as a parent, watching my child's beautiful heart in this, it gives me joy to watch them give. Well, we can't give like Capri and be joyful and excited about giving if all we can think about is the cost to us. But if we believe scripture and we think that the Bible is true and God isn't lying to us, then we don't need to be worried about the cost to us when we give because it's actually all supplied from the Father to begin with. And it's just him giving to us and then us giving from that. And that's a dramatically different way of looking at our money and how generous we should be. And that brings us to our final point. God is discipling us to bring glory to his name. When we give the way that God has designed, we bring glory and honor and we worship God. Verses 12 through 15 says, this service that you performed is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourself, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. You know, Paul is explaining here in this passage, he's saying that, you know what, that gift that you give, that's actually gonna result in exponential worship to God. The Corinthian gift, which started with the gift of Jesus to them, then became overflowing gratitude for the gift that Jesus had given them in their salvation, ended up being a gift to the poor. But it didn't stop there. It didn't just end as they gave the money to the poor. Well, the recipients of that gift then gave glory and worship to God as a result. And they were so thankful for it, they also gave thanks to God for the Corinthian church. And so it results in this cascading worship this cascading thanksgiving to God started from that one gift in the beginning as it created ripples into eternity. You and your giving here at Ellerslie do the same thing. For you here, if you receive Jesus Christ into your life and you are giving at Ellerslie, you give because of the gratitude that is in your heart for what Jesus has done for you. But it doesn't stop there, does it? Your giving provides salaries and pays for this building, which is, allows us to have staff 
which is allows us to have services like this. And in these services, we gather together people and those people lift their voices up in song and thanksgiving to God, creating ripples. Then we speak a message from the word, which breaks people from the chains of bondage and sin. It, it, it lifts their hearts up. It helps them be more like God. And in turn, they give thanks to God. We also do baptisms here. We have weddings here. We, be, we dedicate children here and even funerals. All of those things result in worship and thanksgiving to God. And all of those things create more and more ripples in eternity because of that initial gift of Jesus in your heart. I wanna close with this and the worship team, you can come up now and our prayer teams as well. A few minutes ago, I asked you the question like, why does God love a cheerful giver? And I said, well, a cheerful giver, or God loves a cheerful giver because a cheerful giver gives like God. Well, here's what I mean by that. We bear the image of God in this world. And so when we give generously and cheerfully, we are reflecting the nature of God to this world. Let me say it a different way. God is a cheerful giver. And that's why he loves it when we give cheerfully. And you know why God's a cheerful giver? Or you know how we know that God's a cheerful giver? Because of Jesus. And we read it in the Bible. When we sinned as humanity and the fall happened, God knew that it would take an act of Jesus on the cross in order to save us. But he didn't give reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. No, he gave even, even the most valuable thing that he could and he didn't shy away from doing that. He gave generously because that is who he is. So we need to give generously and cheerfully because when we do that, we are mirroring the generosity of Christ to us, to the world around us. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your initial gift we thank you for what it can do in our hearts and our lives and how you partner with us to make us more like you. And God, as you've given us a great gift, Lord, we pray that we can reflect that generous and cheerful giving nature here at Ellerslie and beyond. May we be generous and cheerful givers and may we not be afraid to step out and say, Lord, how generous and just watch how you call us to give and do different things. Walk with us in that. Give us the courage to pray that. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.